Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to another episode in our forum series from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. Taking on a certain mystery that rides like a wave throughout history. And our guest tonight is the main contributor to this arc, the Norwegian cryptographer and musician Peter Amundsen. Today he will update us and continue to expand upon his history-shattering discoveries, theories and interpretations following this that if they hold water, will force a rewrite of the textbooks on everything concerning Shakespeare, Francis Bacon, Rosicrucianism, Knights, Templars, Freemasonry, and of course, what's going on over at Oak Island in Nova Scotia, the world's most famous treasure island. Amundsen holds a master in music from the Norwegian State Academy, works as an organist at Holmenkollen Chapel in Oslo, is into futures trading, currently runs an import business and lectures worldwide about his discoveries and subsequent theories. After he started using Bacon's code system over 15 years ago, so many finds has been accumulated by him and others who's thrown themselves at the bandwagon that despite all the books, TV series and documentary films, everything is still not published. And better yet, the last dot of this story is still not written. So if you look into it, you will be able to follow the exciting developments as they unfold. Since the nature of this visual matter is poorly suited for radio, the simplest way to understand the scope, significance and context of his discoveries is to go to our website and check out the video links in our presentation page of him. Additionally, you should first listen to a former interview with him where the basics is outlined and today he returns to fill you further in. Today, I'm joined by my friend, I think I can call you that uh, now, and the famous, I would say, codebreaker, Petter Amundsen from Norway. Welcome back, Petter. Great to be here. Thank you, Al, for letting me have this uh, second opportunity to elaborate on my uh, my material. You said famous. I think infamous is more correct. I actually considered calling you that. <laughs> but we are certainly friends of this. You are quite right, sure. my friend. Yes, but I'm sorry to say this program won't be enough either. We, we've invited you back, of course, to update each other, update the audience. Uh, we, so far, I, I am pretty surprised of how many find this interesting outside of Norway because we can see who the people who are listening in, where they are in the world. We can see who you are. Don't, don't worry, people, but we can see where you are. <laughs> <laughs> so how many have been listening to the first part? Uh, now we're up to 10,000 wow. uh, approximately, and uh, that's just a little over a year, right? So it will probably be 20,000 in a year from now. 
Yeah. Okay, ten thousand or twenty thousand confused souls. I'm uh, very happy. <laughs> well, we'll we'll confuse them further today because we will update, but we will also go a little more in in the depths we didn't get to take by, uh, the first round. You did a remarkable sure. job <laughs> filling us in in the first round, and last time we went very much into the codes, and uh, as you know as well as me, it doesn't work as well as it does in film. So today we... It makes bad radio. Yeah, I I still want to talk about codes, but instead of describing them, I think they ought to buy your books to check the code out. So why spoon-feed them? If someone is curious, check the material, look it up, try it for yourself. If someone is skeptical, check the material, look it up, try it for yourself. So we can talk about the codes, mm. but let's not go too much into numbers, I think. And there is always the, the possibility of checking out the films on Vimeo without spending one cent. If you like what you see on Vimeo, the, the TV series uh, Sweets One of Avon, which is the original series from 2009, which is still uh, valid. But uh, of course, things mm. have happened. But uh, if you like that, then you may consider buying the books. It's an excellent beginning anyway, and uh, you don't even have to do much, people. We have uh, put out uh, links at Peter's presentation page at our website. You may remember, Peter, that uh, on Facebook, I used to have a long list of TV series and films that you've done that I referred people to, right, when I recommended it? Yes. It was this long list, yeah. It was a very complete list. Don't worry, I did not transfer the, <laughs> the stuff that's not supposed to be public. But I, I did uh, copy that list otherwise, uh, so people can find all the episodes. They can also continue into the Curse of Argyle series. I put the links to those episodes too. And and that's, of course, tied into this. But we'll get back to all that. We'll get back to your new films at the end here. I think we ought to begin with the beginning. And when we talk about... Um, I mean, there's so many parts we could explore, really. We, we're going to have program just on Shakespeare with different people among else your guy um, uh, the Shakespeare scholar what's his name again uh, your antagonist oh Stanley Wells no uh, Robert Robert Crumpton Crumpton yes yes yeah, I yeah. want to program with him so I, I don't uh, consider him as an antagonist anymore but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sir Stanley is uh, still an antagonist yeah, but uh, no, in your movie, he, he kind of had that role, um, not very bad guy, but someone had to be the skeptic voice, and, and he, he took that unthankful. <laughs> and he has got uh, a perfect personality for this yeah. this kind of thing, so he really offers himself and uh, wears his heart on the sleeve, and it works superbly, I think. So I'm very thankful for Robert's contribution to this. Indeed. I know he's a scholar, but he's, he's an actor too, isn't he? He is. He is. A Shakespearean yeah, actor. Uh, uh, very well acted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's other steps we could explore. I mean, Bacon in himself deserves a program, and we've had on... You know him. Um, well, the man that you should uh, try to talk to, if you haven't already, is uh, Peter Dawkins. That's the guy. Ah, okay, yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. Of course, a lovely guy, wise guy, enlightened guy. Uh-huh. We've had him on for a show on Bacon. So I, I cannot add anything to uh, whatever uh, Peter has to say. He is uh, the uh, authority on Sir Francis. I'm um, not worthy of... Uh, well, I, I, I may tie his shoelaces, but uh, <laughs> that's about it. Well, but he, he's aware of your work, right? Mm, um, at least he says he is. 
yeah. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we could have a program just on codes that are throughout, uh, especially the first folio, but, but there's also some other relevant documents very related to the first folio. As you will remember, people, if you saw our last show, which I do recommend that you do, so if this, if you have tuned in now and you did not listen to my interview with Peter from last year, you just put this on pause, go back, listen to that. It's fully available for free online. And then you come and get this update. We could have a program on RC, Masons, Knights Templars. That's a whole show just there. And we will. Uh, and we have had with uh, Tobias Churton. We could have a whole program on the map. Situation, the coordinates, uh, how to retrieve the treasure. Uh, and we could have, of course, uh, a whole uh, program on Ark Island, and we've had had, and we will have one. So you, you see, Peter, even here is seven steps. <laughs> I mm. just listed seven steps to you. <laughs> and you also revealed the title of the film and um, the new version of the book. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like uh, an alcoholic program, something that you do to improve your life, but... Uh, this is uh, seven steps to, uh, well, mercy, but uh, we have something special waiting there. Exactly. So mercy sounds a little uh, bleak, but uh, it should be interesting. Oh, it's hiding. It's hiding uh, great stuff. And um, the alcoholics, they're onto something because it works. So mm. they probably tapped into the same universal code here, the seven steps. Mm. So... Uh, <clears throat> We'll, we'll go into these uh, areas today, too. Uh, I'd say, you know, one of the, your backers, if I can call him that, Yola Sigmund, I, I, I saw some bad news that he, he's of bad health. Uh, he's mm. still around, right? He, he is, but uh, I send him some messages uh, every now and then, and uh, he does not uh, reply, and um, mm. uh, I don't know really how I shall interpret that. But uh, I don't think that we are not friends. So, uh, unfortunately, I, I think uh, it's something to do with his health. And, yeah. Um, let's just hope. So, our yeah. prayers go out to him. And, uh, yeah, so we hope that he will get better. He's, he's a genius and, uh, you know, the world could use a little more smart people, I think, these days. Yeah, he's a certified <laughs> genius with yeah. his IQ of 192. It's Jeez. almost 200. Wow. Yeah. So, so. I mean, a human walking resource. And he famously backed the findings, of course, not the only one, but a very significant, not just because he's bright. Obviously, there's a lot of bright people, but he's relevant also in that his craft is overlapping with so many areas in this phenomenon. I'm thinking about um, yeah, book printing. Yeah. Typography. I'm thinking about uh, that he he makes codes and puzzles for a living. Hmm. I'm thinking about that he, unlike many so-called academics who don't even know basic stuff about history and the phenomenon of the RC and you know uh, that stereography and stuff like that was uh, used back then. People don't even know that, and they still try to debunk your stuff without having basic cultural and historical knowledge. But this guy has it all, hmm. and he backed you. But of course, they, they have to debunk me. I mean, I mean <laughs> the things I I claim cannot stand without uh, any debunking. It's it's very problematic. Mm. But another thing about the, the, the IQ of 192, you know, the average is supposed to be 100 for all people. Mm. But we, if someone 
has 192. It doesn't mean that another person would have eight to balance it out, but it means that uh, you have uh, 10 people with uh, less than 100 in an IQ. So uh, he's to blame for the general stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean that he, he artificially drags the average so high up? Yeah, if if it's all balanced, then mm. ten people should have an IQ of ninety-one, and he has one ninety-two. So. Yeah, so yeah, the universal balancing power. It's a paradox. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's to blame for stupid people. So if I take that to its very diabolical end, that reasoning, that means that if you kill off him and all geniuses, the average intelligence will rise. Yeah, it's a good plan. Good plan. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I prefer actually variation. As you know, you know me well enough that uh, we appreciate individual differences rather than uniformitarity. Yeah, and probably you will would be the first to be killed. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm actually volunteering <laughs> just by having this uh, podcast, so yeah. I know where to find me. But I want to say, uh, Petter, there are a couple of other guys that's backed you that I think uh, we should mention, uh, because they have, uh, unlike Jola Sigmund, who can do it the manual way, the, the human way, <clears throat> they have gone into computers. And last time when I asked you a somewhat naive question, and I'm still not done educating myself on this matter. I'm, I'm in the middle of both your books, haven't had time to complete them, but they're very, and I can say this people, very thrilling, enticing books. I'll, I'll talk more about that. Thank later. you. Yeah. I'll actually go into very kind of you to say so. a more detailed description of them later. Thank you. Yeah. But there is, um, Larsen is one of them. Mm. And, uh, Oh, the other guy's name slips me, but they have gone into computers. Two Larsons, uh, Frode Larsen yeah, Frode. and uh, Øystein Bruno Larsen. Okay, there's three guys. There's another guy too. Oh yeah, there's several. But uh, Frode is, uh, I think he's, he's the best of them. But um, that's my opinion. But Einstein has done some beautiful work, but through the, he is, he is brilliant. Maybe his IQ is close to Jorla Sigmund's. <laughs> but these two Larsen guys are not related, uh, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, it's a very common Norwegian name. Uh, they're not similar to uh, to look at, but uh, who knows? Mm. Yeah. No, this this third guy, I wanted to give him a shout out too, but I forgot his name right now and I didn't notice. I know that um, our Swedish friend uh, Daniel has done some uh, computing as well. Yeah, I just remember the name of the third guy, uh, Halge Tingstad. Could that be it? Something like that? Um, not not Helge, perhaps. Uh, not not Helge, was yeah, something else. Uh, but Sing. Yeah, Rick, uh, yeah. Kingstar, Kingstar, yeah. Um Rickard. Rickard, there you have it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, anyway, so you have this bunch of, uh, of computer experts, or whatever we should call them, and they have run your stuff through statistics and... Uh, even found. I, I don't know. I don't really know because it would be very difficult to run it through a computer. But maybe some of it. I've done some simple uh, statistical calculations myself uh, just with a calculator. But uh, the, the problem is where to draw the line because you're looking for a really frightening ratio one to X trillions yeah. uh, statistical, but it doesn't really tell you much. So um, I think 
it should speak to your heart and if it doesn't then uh forget it if it does it is beautiful and uh why don't you keep it yeah and you'll you'll have many who will support that view uh, but there will always be these nitpickers and we have to throw them bones too because uh, as long as we have the bones to throw them this isn't just romance this isn't just like a novel this is also hard facts and uh, even if you choose to take the poetic <laughs> very baconian uh, of you we we need both aspects <clears throat> like bacon also did you know well i appreciate that people try but mm. honestly al to me i don't care if people believe me that's fine if they don't that's fine mm. um my ambition is to tell a story that i find beautiful And if they see the beauty in it, that is wonderful. And if they are provoked, then that's super duper because I'd like to have people engaged in this. Mm. My ambition is not to convince people. And I can't see why that should be important. But things are happening uh, at the place that you know very well, I know very well. Mm. And uh, I think that would probably uh, take care of uh, proving if there is something to this or not. And we can talk about numbers and ratios until the cows come home. And, well, it's opinions. Mm. Yeah, but still, uh, let's say they they don't find anything in the swamp. Like I told you before, it doesn't really disprove uh, anything because your work, like we just said, there's so many steps here. And it really boils down to the weakest links. So let's say you actually have a weak link that doesn't hold water. Then people may do the error of dismissing everything. But you can't dismiss, for instance, the, the codes in the first folio, etc. So I think you're, if that should happen, that somehow it's disproven, <laughs> if that's even possible, then you should analyze the links and find out where you went wrong, because you're not wrong uh, in totality anyway. Well, I see this uh, adventure as something that has several chains. So if there is one chain that indeed has a weak link or two, then the whole thing will not crash because there are so many strings keeping this together. Mm. But of course, there are some crucial, uh, crucial uh, moments along this path that uh, really needs to, uh, to hold water, as you say. Which steps would that be? It has to do with the final step mm. towards uh, the mercy point that we will talk about, I'm sure, uh, later. So I know very well where the, the problem is. And um, so it narrows down to something that is uh, is fragile and then it opens out again. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so this is the crucial point and I know it and uh, I'm vulnerable, but still I say, I think it is beautiful. I could be wrong, but I think it has value since it is something that has found the audience that uh, really uh, enjoys it, uh, apparently. And uh, I think that uh, that's a good thing. Mm, I agree. Uh, Petra, what is the prosecutor's fallacy? Well, if you have the statistics and if you are thinking about uh trial, court trial, and you have the um, DNA sample, you could say that uh, there is a one in one million chance to have a match. 
then the fallacy would be to say that uh, it is uh, one in one million chance that this person is innocent. We've got him, but that's that's wrong, because in Norway we have five million people, so it is five people that will have a matching DNA. So we are talking one in five. So that is the correct ratio and not the one in one million. Mm. So the DNA can only be used if you already have something on the suspects beforehand. If you can tie a person to the place where the crime was committed and then you back it up with the DNA sample. But the DNA alone is just one in five and uh, it won't uh, hold up in court. Or at least it shouldn't. Mm. <laughs> no, so that makes perfect sense. So so if you have a, a match of five people and only one of them are, let's say, related or, or, or somehow can be put in connection with this case, and if they did it before they started the statistics, then... Uh, uh, we can just transfer that principle to what you're doing, right? For instance, regarding some of this usual suspects that pops up in this case. Yeah. And we'll get to them. Bacon is no secret, of course. He's, he's a big... Uh, Correct. Because yeah. the Bacon is uh, one of the usual suspects and he was, as you imply, suspected long before the codes. Yeah, there's some new names since last time too. But before that, let's just do away with the skeptical arguments first. You have the very typical, uh, they don't just do this to you, but in general, they have these uh, knee-jerk debunking arguments. For instance, you've heard many times, and we'll hear it many more times, where they say, oh, anyone who looks uh, hard close enough will find as many codes as they want anywhere actually mm. <laughs> not just what do you say about that does that hold water that <laughs> argument i can tell you i have heard that and i've heard it many many times mm. and i try to test it because people also say that i will not try to prove my point because uh, the burden of proof is on you so that's a catch 22 so I tried to motivate people to to test this uh, idea that you can find whatever you would like to find um, if you just look for it. So I had this um, arrangement done in the great university library in Oslo during the Easter time a few years ago. And I put up uh, quite a lot of money, I think, as the first price. And we defined what to look for. And it was kind of a replica of one of the key ciphers that I use in the, in the books and the film. And it should be very easy to find this if you uh, were looking for it. And it's, the case is that it will be there if you look for it. And the people who were contending, they uh, spent a few hours leafing through uh, as many books as they uh, could stomach. Mm-hmm. And then it was back to the table and compare results. And the, it was really nothing. It was huh. very, very disappointing. And I asked them, so what do you think about uh, the claim that you will find whatever you're looking for? And they just laughed. Mm. So. Well, I had to ask, uh, <clears throat> first of all, how many took part in this experiment? And uh, what was the sources apart from um, the first folio? 
of Shakespeare. They could look, they could look up uh, whatever book they like to to check. Mm. So I think we were seven or eight. I have the notes somewhere. Um, okay. Well, that gives us a general idea. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, the thing they were looking for, they were looking for acrostics mm -hmm. that would be equal to the page number because in my work I use the TWO code as I call it the TWO cipher which is TWO is two and it is mm. placed on page two and uh, yeah so um, yeah. if you care to, to watch the films you will see what I mean mm. and I think that the winner found uh, TRE on page three in one book wow That's quite a feat. <laughs> yeah. If it was just coincidental. Yeah. But, um. So acrostics, yeah, because there's different types of codes. We are, and of course, we just call everything codes, but strictly speaking, there's differences here. And you work a lot with what's called steganography, like you explained to us in, in the, our last show. But the interesting thing, if you use the prosecutor's fallacy, we'll see that Bacon, he really pops up where he, he shouldn't, or maybe we should say where he should. A lot mm. of times, just yeah. blasting statistics only there. Yes, he does. Mm. And this is why I, I say the statistics isn't that important, because we have some extra features that really um, makes the statistics uh, blow the roof of your house. But mm. it would work without this, because it's so beautiful. You have the TW matching the F bacon, but that W has been a lowercase W adds a lot to uh, to the odds. Mm. Um, but but it would have worked without it. So um, uh, a skeptic would move his threshold as he pleases. So if I say that that, that is one in two billion, and then he could say, ah, I need the one in two trillion to be happy. So yeah. yeah, yeah, they move the goalposts. So yeah, yes. If if you don't want to to appreciate it, then you will never do it. So uh, why care? But <laughs> still, you you say throw them some bones, and uh, <laughs> I I I think I have done that. But um, well. yeah, I can answer that. Why care? Because they can't stand that people are enthusiastic about something. They can't stand that people are uh, having this romance, poetic approach. Oh, yeah, wow, ooh, beautiful. Yeah. Because then people are silly, you know, and um, no, no soul, no heart. We should only stick to facts. And, and I, I'm all for facts, man, but we don't live in an either-or universe. We live in a both-and So let's have the heart and the head in this. And as I can see with my simple mind, that's exactly what Bacon and, and uh, the people did. They had an intellectual aspect and they had a poetic aspect. And what's more poetic uh, than Shakespeare? <laughs> mm, no, good point, good point. But you, you are onto something there. And silly, that is uh, scary. Yeah. Passion, scary, scary stuff. Mm. Yeah, and and of course Shakespeare is um, has become the cornerstone of our modern literature, and people discuss who would be behind. Could there be uh, several people because it's so brilliant? And, and we'll get to that too. One last question about the skeptics. Now they also say, <clears throat> oh well, okay, there's codes there, but they are coincidental. I think we could use the prosecutor's fallacy here too. We could say, no, look. 
if the coach say that uh, there's a sale on Saturday and then another coach say that uh, uh, look to to the south and then a third coach say that uh, turn on your computer. Yeah, they are going in all directions. But these codes are actually pointing to a narrative that fits with the context, don't they? Mm. Yes. And this is the strength. It is all part of a system, a geometric setup. Even the TWO, you don't suspect it in the beginning because you think it's a, it's a number, but then you see that it is more than a number and that it relates to the geometry that is presented as you go. So it, it's a whole clicking into this beautiful, beautiful construction. It's, architecture of the purest and finest kind i think and um, mm. it's nothing that is superfluous no no and i said to i had a discussion with a uh, uh, professor in um, patristics not not tobias shorten an american uh, called joseph allen uh, this was a philosophical program we had, and we discussed how Bacon did in geometry. Actually, that was my claim. Uh, what Bach did in music, mm-hmm. and that's uh, you. You can see the you recognize the similarities because you're obviously schooled in musical codes, Bach, all this. Yes, I, I think that that's a good analogy because Bach's music is sublime, and still we think that there are ciphers in the way he has composed it, the number of uh, notes, etc., and the way a uh, theme is built, that it symbolizes something else. Mm. And in the same way, we have the beautiful drama of Shakespeare, and something has been added to it, that something is that is below the surface. So I think it's a fair comparison. Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's leave the <clears throat> skeptics uh, for a while then. They can uh, continue this anyway with uh, your books and uh, online. Let's go to some of the news that's popped up since last time. We, we do remember that you were pulling a plug for Neville, Bacon's nephew, mm-hmm. who I also think can be connected to... Can't he be connected to Shakespeare through marriage or something? Um, I, was I that can't Neville? Be. I, f- I forgot. One of them were, and I was at your lecture with your <coughs> colleague, the Oxfordian. I forgot his name. Geir? Mm. Geir, yes. Geir Uttala. Yeah. Uh, famous Norwegian. No. Yeah, maybe he, he said something about that, but I, I, I hesitate to, to comment on this because I'm not certain. Hmm. I, I rely on the, on the codes. Yeah, yeah, so of this course. Is, this is really me in a, in a nutshell that, I don't have all the facts about these people. I see that, okay, here we have the, the ciphers pointing in a direction and I mm. try to piece together what can be pieced together. And, uh, I'm not uh, really, um, delving into all, all the details about the biographies, etc. But what you are probably implying here is that we have a third candidate, mm. haven't we? Yeah. So, and then there were three. And who would that be? <laughs> Sir William, not Shakespeare, but William Stanley. Stanley. Yeah. And he's already uh, been one of those who has been accused yes. of perpetrating the Shakespearean. 
one of the better candidates. Mm. Definitely. And how come you, you came around to him? I mean, you were a pretty hardcore Baconian originally. So what happened here? I see codes and the codes will convince me. Mm. So people come um, with uh, with Oxford and uh, of course Oxford that is not uh, the silliest thing to to claim but no <clears throat> neither the Earl of Oxford or Marlowe I'd say if you look at the <clears throat> contents of Shakespeare versus them No no you can you can argue that mm. that it's a good case for Oxford and a good case for Marlowe but I have not seen any codes any ciphers that that really makes me think that it could be so because i i think that since we have these ciphers and bacon is prominent in the ciphers i see neville in the ciphers mm. and this is what changed my mind regarding neville i was very skeptical mm. but when i i saw brenda james presenting a cipher that was inescapable then i knew and, and this incidentally was a software that you hadn't discovered yourself right you saw hers i saw hers i was mm. very skeptical almost uh, scoffing at it <laughs> yeah. um, because you you get tired of uh, all these codes uh, and uh, you've seen so many um, so much bad cryptography and as i was thinking ah, what what is she doing and then and just boop I really had to spin around 180 degrees. Mm. I was blown away by one of her presentations because I, I just had to accept it right then, right there. And the same thing. Follow the evidence, as they say. Yeah, sure. I knew I, I had been wrong. Mm. I had been negative, but there was <laughs> there was no good reason why I should have been negative. It's just my prejudice and. Um, So, so she was brilliant and brought a new contender to the table. William Stanley is uh, old stuff. So he, he, as you said, he, he's one of uh, the old timers in the um, running in the, the Shakespeare hit. Mm. But I was taken to him from a book that I bought on the Amazon. Um, I don't recall its name, but what I saw. And it was a cipher in the first folio was okay. Mm. I accept. And then I went looking for further ciphers, looking for William Stanley, because then I, I knew what to look for. And I have looked for, for De Vere, uh, the Earl of Oxford, but I haven't found him. You gave him a chance. I have given him a chance. And the problem with De Vere is that Vere is just four letters, V-E-R-E. And They are not really statistically significant because E is such a common letter. Mm. So uh, if you find V E R E in some connection, it doesn't really move me unless it had been in a very beautiful setup, and uh, I don't think it uh, it has been presented to me yet. But I'm open for it. Probably easier if they wanted to put in De Vere that they put in Oxford instead, since he was the Earl of Oxford and he was known. known yeah, as I think uh, it should be no problem. I, mm. I've looked for him on the, on the typical pages because uh, after a while you get a sense of how they do it. So, okay, if it's uh, Stanley, then it should be something on this page. And voila, here he is. Mm. So, um, and the same with, uh, with uh, Henry Neville, mm. that he should be there. And yes, he is. 
Indeed. Yeah, but Neville, you discovered that through Brenda James's quotes, and then you found quotes for Neville yourself, didn't you? Yeah, sure, because I have another experience than Brenda James. She has her uh, her dabblings in the in the cipher world, and I have mine. So mm. I, I know that uh, there is a certain system that uh, usually reflects the the authors. And so far, I have three. Bacon, Stanley, and Neville. I think uh, three is... Um, yeah, the main culprits, but you have others in the context, of course, that has to be have been involved in the entire project. But if we reduce it to Shakespeare... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben Johnson, certainly. <laughs> yeah, I was but, going to ask um, you about him, too. I doubt that he has been writing. I think he, he was uh, a playwright in his own. Yeah. Um, but um, regarding Stanley and regarding Neville, they did not write anything under their own names ah. but still they were regarded to have an excellent pen and some of the characteristics of stanley matches the characteristics of william shakespeare and stanley had his own um, group of players and brother of william stanley his troop of, of players was transformed into uh, Lord Chamberlain's men, which is the group that Shakespeare was uh, was in. So, wow. So here's another connection. The, it could be so that during the seven lost years of Shakespeare, that he was touring along with the Stanleys somewhere in England, and they plotted the whole thing. Mm. Mm. Or, or at least uh, we we have proof that they have had uh, ample opportunity to conspire, <laughs> to put it like that, to put their heads together and plan. Yes, and there were spies back in the old times, Jesuit spies, and one of them reported that William Stanley spent all his time penning plays for the actors. Mm. But where are those? Yeah. And, and this is such an important point. We cannot underestimate this, people, that w- what he points to here, because as we've said before, back in the day, it was no uh, frivolous thing to write, well, plays and poems, especially not what was involved in Shakespearean because of the political climate. We, we have gone, gone into this in other shows. We will go more into this in other shows. So we don't have to do that here and now. But I just want to point that out because <clears throat> both William Stanley and Henry Neville were uh, nobles like Bacon. And like Bacon, neither of them involved their name in such a thing. Like this is different with Marlowe and well, at least with Marlowe, because he, he did publish stuff under his own name. So, um, so Neville and Stanley would have then had the opportunity to do this thing through the Shakespearean project. But tell us, Peter, how did you, how did Stanley get upgraded? Uh, what codes did you see? Did someone present you a code with him and then you mm. looked for him or did you discover him yourself? No, no, no. Uh, I saw the work of someone else. You'll, you'll find it. People can look for it themselves uh, in the list of uh, actors that have been playing Shakespeare plays in the first folio. You'll find them there. Okay. So that's all I say. And you found uh, codes too, didn't you? Yeah, l- later in the first folio. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. That's very interesting because if we're going to go somewhere here, we have so much material that we can afford to speculate. Of course, as long as we say a speculation about what happened, who contacted who. Do you still believe that Bacon must have been editor-in-chief for, for the Shakespearean project? 
I think he was uh, the mastermind of the whole thing. Mm. But what his role was is impossible to uh, determine. But yeah. I think that the beautiful Shakespearean prose was more due to the effort of Stanley and uh, Neville because mm. there is difference between Bacon's language and Shakespeare's language. But Again, this is my Norwegian guesstimate, so um, it's really worth nothing, but you ask for my opinion. Yeah. It's you and me now discussing it, so it's our opinions that we'll have to do for now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so all the kudos to you for, we know that you're a musician and a cryptographer, obviously, no one works with these ancient codes anymore, so anybody who works with it will be a hobby cryptographer. But that's your main feat here. And, and it's, you've had, it's a realm of the amateur. Yeah, yeah amateur realm. Yeah. But you've had to educate yourself as you've gone along and read up on these things. And the more you've done, the more you learned. And uh, and I think people deserve to understand that's how you, your approach. You don't want to convince anyone. You've done this. It started as a genuine interest. You've uncovered stuff, and then you followed up on stuff, and you all the time. And that's a very impressive, Peter. You you have to get that kudos too. You have no problem reorientating your position if you think you're wrong, and that's the hallmark of a truth seeker. Yes, I am. Thank you, because I really want to emphasize this i am out to find the truth that is my ambition mm. i am not here to be right i want the truth if i see that i'm wrong then i will be the first to, to scream i was wrong do not listen <laughs> yeah. yeah because I, it, it's so much responsibility yeah. so i i really want the truth and if i see that i am wrong then of course i try to Correct, but I'm, I must confess that if I see typos in my books, I, I don't always uh, go to correct them because it's, uh, it's a hassle. But, but I, I try to do my best to, to correct whenever I say something that is wrong or do something that is wrong. And so far, my arrogance has been uh, challenged at least twice with Stanley and Neville. Mm. Well, if I see any sign that Shakespeare himself was a writer, I would be happy to uh, include him because I'm not out to offend the Shakespeareans. I would like to unite with them. So if I, I find a good reason for, for for inviting them in, look here, you're, you're, you're bard. He was part of this. I would be elated. But mm. uh, unfortunately, I'm not there yet. Mm. No, and, and we are the same. I, I haven't invited you on just because you're a friend and because uh, I personally think this is something that uh, I enjoy as a personal hobby interest. Uh, if, in that case, I would have a million people to invite on and uh, <laughs> we would not go anywhere. No, like you, I sincerely recognize the truth that you're on to. How much is truth? All the details, that's another that's what we have to find out, right? That's what you're working out. But this needs to be told. And truth is a hard-to-come-by commodity these days. You, how can you determine truth? Yeah. You, you look at media, you are lied to mm. all the time. So this is why it's a relief to look at the old text and they can at least provide something that uh, <laughs> you can at least comfort yourself by, by saying this looks like truth. 
Yeah. And uh, it's such a huge project that it needs to go out. Like what I discussed when I had Daniel Ronstam on, we, we, we call it a social engineering project. The greatest social engineering project to come out of the Renaissance, and we know the Renaissance was full of geniuses. That was basically what the Renaissance was known for. Yeah. That, that was the area of the lonely genius up until the modern time. And you had... Um, People who devoted, we know already of many brilliant things taking place then. And your <clears throat> hypothesis isn't far out in that it's not doable. It's very possible, uh, all this stuff. It all fits. It just needs to be confirmed that it actually happened, that someone actually wanted to do this. They had the means, we know that. They had the will, they had the motivation. But it's the evidence that is the problem. It's not, there's no reaching anywhere in your entire hypothesis. And I want also a little bit later to go into that hypothesis and see more details about it. But you mentioned Johnson. I didn't ask you this last time. How did you go from Shakespeare to Johnson? Because Johnson, although it's obvious that he is involved in the project, uh, in the bigger project, he, he doesn't pop up, like you said, uh, with codes. So how did you know to go to him? Ben Johnson is present uh, twice in the first follow. Oh, yeah, you have right. the first, the, the poem to the reader, mm -hmm. which is signed B.I. And everybody thinks that, um, that, that is Ben Johnson. But yeah. I say that, okay, it could be Ben Johnson. And it's, it's okay, except that it is Ben Johnson. But I say that the B.I. can be something else as well. And mm -hmm. you have the large two page poem to the memory of my beloved William Shakespeare, where he introduces the sweet swan of Avon. Mm. And someone who introduces a sweet swan of Avon must be into it, mm. because that is a key phrase. And we also have poems by uh, by Ben Johnson and plays by Ben Johnson, where he mentions the Rosicrucians. So, Mm. So he is certainly uh, familiar with the Rosicrucians. If he was a member, if anyone was a member, we don't know. But he writes about Rosicrucians in his own works. So it's not a, a far leap. No, no, it's not. And uh, we also know that he was connected to these uh, usual suspects, as we call them. So uh, He was a friend of, uh, of Bacon's. Uh, yeah. I don't know if he was a friend of Neville's and Stanley, but... Uh, at least he was a great friend of, uh, of Sir Francis. Uh, and I think he, he too was connected to Will Shakespeare, the actor. Oh, yeah, he was. So mm. he could have been, the, what, what do you call it, the node here. Middleman. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. But you mean between Shakespeare and, and, yeah. um, and Bacon. Mm. Why not? Yeah. No, and, and you found codes for Shakespeare indicated that he was a frontman. If you interpret the codes, I mean. That is one of the my weak uh, ciphers, but still, uh, I, I think it may be something. At least it was, but if the code is valid or if this is this may be a case of I find what I'm looking for because it's not really statistically significant, not enough uh, letters. No, but it's also backed up by, by other finds that are traditional. For instance, the analysis of uh, Bacon, you know, the shaker of the spear, uh, and they're looking at the, this dam, this swamp, and you have um, uh, this goddess, uh, you know which image I'm referring to? Pallas Athena. Yeah, Pallas Athena, mm. yeah. Mm. So, so you have uh, things uh, suggesting that 
Shakespeare, I think he was in the know and I think he was paid as Daniel found a picture, I think uh, that must have, may have been in Daniel Mogling or some other sources where someone is paid to be, to be the front man. You know, I believe that uh, Shakespeare knew that he was into this. Yeah. So I, I think that he deserves lots of credit. He played his part excellently. And I think it's not um, a bad thing to, to accept him as the poet because we are supposed to accept him to be the poet. Yeah. So you uh, need to be a special kind of truth seeker to to not accept that. And uh, I, I think it's, it's no big deal because they were mm. happy to go into their graves. Everybody knows that it is William Shakespeare of Stratford who wrote these plays and we are happy. We couldn't care less. We don't mm. need the credit. No, because the point wasn't that at all. So, yeah. These are humble men. They uh, procure this place for humanity. It's, it's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, and if it's bigger than just writing good plays, if it's as big as your finds indicate, then it's so insignificant who takes the credit here. True, very true. And also the secrecy is needed, not to arouse suspicion. Yeah, and I think actually more than that they wanted to give credit. I, I don't even think they thought about credit because it was just a liability back then. Mm. <laughs> they couldn't foresee how this would become like the biggest uh, literature in history in Western time. At least in the beginning, around uh, 1600 when Elizabeth still lived it was a liability. It became better with King James, but, but still. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, But I think that's why they needed him. Just okay, you're you're this uh, Lazarun, as we say, this um, what's an English word, this uh, joke to this uh, um, tramp. And, yeah. Okay, so you take the heat here, and we can can do this in in. Uh, and still, they didn't say they didn't call it Will Shakespeare. They did insist in Will I am Shakespeare. So yeah. uh, that's interesting. And you said the last time that Queen Elizabeth she actually commissioned Bacon to find out who this was, and she didn't give a damn about uh, Will Shakespeare. She didn't think it was him. Correct. She was furious because she needed to find out who had really written Richard II. And the tale is that it was Francis Bacon who was, uh, got, who got the job to find out. So, <laughs> it's quite yeah, ironic. That's so funny. And he was a spy, uh, you know, yeah. so he was raised by, um, 007 himself, John D. So and his brother was a spy. He was an agent. He was uh, his brother. if if John D was the 007 by his uh, his sign, then his brother Anthony he he acted like uh, 007, traveled around <laughs> reporting. Yeah, right. Could uh, is it inconceivable that uh, Bacon's brother or other family members, maybe even his father, somehow could have been involved in the entire? Rosicrucian Masonic Knights Templar project. Who knows? But mm. he died quite early. So I think that this really took off after he had died. Right. But, but we know from traditional history that, uh, and I said this the last time too, even uh, Stratfordian's hypothesis that Okay, Will Shakespeare wasn't alone. He had a bunch of friends who we can see may have had an influence here. 
Um, would you just happen to know? Have you seen this picture with ba- with Shakespeare and his friends, where the usual suspects pops up, including Bacon? Yeah, yeah the beautiful uh, it's, yeah. Uh, romantic painting, isn't it, uh, from yeah. the seventeen hundreds? Is Stanley or Neville included there? Mm, I don't know. No. no, I'm going to make it my personal um, task to find out who who check is. it out. Yeah, because yeah. I found uh, I doubt I I don't you don't think that Neville was there, but no, Stanley mm, could have been because he had his uh, group of players. But yeah. since he didn't have any works mm. from his hand, at least uh, through his name, then I doubt it. Yeah, same with Neville. So. And Neville didn't, so I, mm. I, I do not think that he would be there. No, but Johnson definitely was. Oh yeah, he would be there. And Bacon. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if Marlowe and uh, Oxford popped up too in that painting. I have to check that. Yeah, would be interesting. Kidd and Spencer and. Uh... Yeah, and some of those guys pop up in uh, an entirely different thread. Someone else is researching about the Green Man. Yeah. And they found some interesting things where they connect the publisher yeah. uh, and the specific plate that has been used. And that's interesting because you probably don't know this, but they found many of these people we're talking about here. I'm, I'm not sure about Stanley, but Spencer and, and Johnson and Bacon and all these are tied together by this publishing thing. Mm. So we'll not talk about that now, but it's just a, another circumstantial. There's so many circumstantial evidences that kind of backs each other up. Uh, this is Paul and uh, and Daniel stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's more more in their area. But if you should recap this, um, what would you say are your most important codes, and and what do they point to? Again, do not attempt to describe the codes. <laughs> Go to the books, but to, we can name them, like we have the Kabbalistic cross, you know, in in the mm. first folio. So, like that, we have the TWO. Cipher mm-hmm. that indicates F. Bacon is a is a first glimpse, which grows into something bigger, and we have the upward rosy cross that really tells us something about the group that is behind this. Mm. Uh, then we have in the sonnets we have the the treasure map and the star signs. I'm talking about this in a TEDx talk that will be published later. So far, it has only been released in um, in the stream uh, that was published on on YouTube, but it's not good at all. So it will be a perfectly edited uh, version of my talk where the slides will come at the right point, uh, etc. So I I would really recommend that if you're interested in one of the ciphers, one of the key ciphers, it Mm. explains the master WH code, as I call it. And this gives you the key that you should allow yourself to look at Greek and Latin letters interchangeably. And then you have the star map and then you find on the different pages, according to the angles of the, the geometry, you'll see the stars that will be part of the map. And voila, you are on to uh, the mercy uh, point definition. Okay. Is this the TEDx that uh, you did in Arendal in, in South Norway recently? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. This was in September in Arnold. Cool, I have that link. Um, yeah, but it's not a good one because uh, it's just a video feed without any editing. So it, okay. it will be a new one. So it's no use uh, trying to find that yet. But uh, in a month or so, I think it will be up. Sure. And we are now talking uh, mid-October, so mid-November perhaps. Right. And when the proper link is up, mm. you don't have to look for it, people. We'll put it up in the entire filmography of Peter, so, so that will be that too. Thank you, and it's totally free of charge. Yeah, um, yeah. so, so were you done recapping the most important uh, of your finds, uh, of the codes? Yeah, I think so. I think these are the key, the key ciphers. Mm. Uh, but we didn't touch upon this last time either. I want you to tell us what you found, and, and the reason I will ask this here now is because there's others who are also, I mean, everybody actually has tied this to everything, but et in Arcadia ego. Mm. You have several references to that big, yeah. big old mystery. Would you mind to tie that up to your uh, project? Hmm. I would be happy to. Etinarkale ego is also present in the first folio of Shakespeare, I say. I, I could have listed it uh, in, in the key ciphers that you, you were asking for, but I had to really look for the, the very, very best. And I also think it is present on the statue that is in St. Michael's Church in St. Albans, the church in which Sir Francis Bacon is supposed to be buried, mm. but his grave is empty. Mm. And I think that uh, the Arcadia is linked to the Acadie or Arcadia of the New World, not necessarily the old Greece version of it, but uh, there is the old name for Nova Scotia is uh, Acadie or uh, Arcadia in some maps. So it's interchangeable. Yeah, let me just rush to explain that that's because it's in French when it's Acadie and it's been on French hands. So the reason they had to, somewhere is called Acadie and somewhere is called Arcadia is simply a linguistic matter. It's not that it's different. It's the same. It's the same name. Yeah. Just so people know this. Yeah. Because we got actually a criticism about this. Someone who claimed, no, no, this is in Greece. Yeah, it is. It is in Greece. But uh, it, yeah, and older than that is in myths. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's also in Nova Scotia is the point. It's actually a geographical place. It is a geographical place in Greece and also in, uh, in Nova Scotia. But mm. we need to be precise. It's normally without the R. Yeah, but it's a French, so Acadie, you know, it's... Um, the R in French, maybe this is why they, they dropped it. But there are maps that they have the R, where it says uh, Arcadia. Mm. So um, I think it's, it's a pun, really. Yeah. Mm. And I also use, in my books, I also reference the famous paintings, because this this phrase, it originated in uh, Il Guarcino's painting with mm. the skull. Or at least we think it is Squarcino because it is an unsigned painting. But since these two shepherds who are looking into the scene from the left, they are also present in a painting that is definitely by Guarcino, Mm. the flaying of Marcias. Therefore, I believe they also think that that must be a Guarcino painting, but... We are not 100% certain. No, but mainstream art scholars thinks it's him. 
Yes, but it, it has been a little bit back and forth. Mm. Um, not not very long ago, but I think now they are quite happy to think that it is uh, Guachino. Mm. But the statues uh, that you, you can also see in the new movie, they are referring to Poisson's version of it in Arcadia Ego, the Shepherds of Arcadia. Indeed. The famous pointing. In Shagborough Hall, yeah, yeah. with a DM code underneath. Yeah, and they reversed it. Yeah, but sometimes they are reversed, these reliefs. So it's not necessarily um, uh, something that's uh, hidden or... Not deliberate. But it, it, could, it could be, it could be. But um, mm. the cipher is very mysterious. And, of course, I have my own take on that, which is, yeah. is presented in the books. But I think the best version is the one that Einstein Bruno Larsson has found. And uh, I'm very impressed by his his work. Mm-hmm. So this is also something because normally I'm skeptical when people approach me and they have got their solutions, but I noticed immediately that he he was onto something. Right. Yeah, and you, you obviously, as people know, in Arcadia you have the RC that they point to mm. one of these shepherds. <laughs> Just one little thing there yeah. of many. And another Larsen, Frode Larsen, he has got a lot to say on that painting. Oh, okay. This is very impressive. Where can we find uh, the corroborating works of these uh, researchers? Do you know if there's a page for, for these things too? I think you will have to look on YouTube because Frode Larsen has made several videos and I hope they are still up. Mm. So uh, I can check for the links and I can send them to you and then you can post them. Yeah, you do that and we'll uh, do that. Yeah. But now, let's take a short break. Sure. We, when we come back, we'll go very deep into some even more exciting, mind-blowing aspects of this fantastic story. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back. We are here today with Peter, Peter Amundsen. And uh, we're giving you an update, taking on the fantastic story that we started the last time about one of the most incredible stories in modern history, which through Petter's journey begins with Shakespeare and ends up in, of course, Oak Island. Mm. Now, where were we, Petter? Well, yeah, you've been naming, take this Arcadia, Arcadie, which is an interesting thing, but I'm so amazed that you have the same kind of connection in all the versions. You have, uh, let's begin with the beginning. Originally, they call it Gloucester Island, right? This is the name given on the first good map of the area. Yeah. Hmm. And did you see in a mutual friend's secret group researching this, someone pointed out that the, an old map where they crossed off in Gloucester Island, it was crossed off Captain Kidd's treasure. <laughs> did you see this? Mm, as Gloucester Island? On Oak Island, which is what we're talking about here. I've seen I've seen maps where they have crossed off Captain Kidd's treasure, but I yeah. haven't seen it paired with the Gloucester Island. 
So that that's a new one. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I was amazed that uh, this means that the rumor, the myth, the tradition is so old that even back then, when the first maps popped up in popular circulation, they actually. Oh yeah. Pointed uh, because uh, around uh, the end of the 18th century, Captain Kidd's treasure was really a fad, and yeah. this map that I was talking about uh, was a few decades earlier. So it was uh, a fresh. But what's the connection here to the Duke of Gloucester, Humphrey? This is my interpretation of it. I think that mm. Gloucester Island, and also because I. Do you think it is a page in the first folder that describes what is on Gloucester Island and uh, gives you the geometry? Mm. Um, and that this is Duke Humphrey, and Duke Humphrey is the patron of the Masons. Right. So he was uh, walking out on a limb and really, uh, he was punished for his support of the masons back then that was not the freemasons but the original the stone masons mm. but still he has uh, been revered by modern masons and you'll see that his tomb has been refurbished by local freemasons in the year 2000 hmm. mm. and uh, he had a nickname didn't he yeah, because he, he had a badge with a swan. So he went by the nickname The Swan. So, which And why is that relevant? <laughs> Just to spoon feed us. Why is that relevant yeah, yeah, to this yeah. story? I mentioned the, the Sweet Swan of Avon that yeah. Ben Johnson launched. If you reverse that, you get the new temple of God. Hmm. And this swan is also present in the sky because Ben Johnson continues. He says that we stay as he in the hemisphere advanced and made a constellation there. And of course, this is a reference to the swan Cygnus in Latin that is on the sky. And this is the constellation that leads you to Oak Island because the tail star of the swan, which is the, the, the most um, obvious star in in the swan and also part of the summer triangle because triangular geometry is also part of this. So the, the summer triangle is, is, of course, not a perfect three, four, five triangle, but it's very close to one. You'll, mm. you'll see it and you'll, you'll try to, to measure it because uh, it, it looks so similar. And the world has its degrees of longitude and latitude and this is also the case for the sky and in freemasonic lodges you'll see that you have two globes one of the sky and one of the earth and they have of course got the same the same grids hmm. which means that you can take one point in the sky and transfer it directly to the similar point on the earth hmm. so if you do this with the tail star of the swan, you will end up in Nova Scotia. Gloucester Island. Well, it's uh, difficult to pinpoint it this well. And this is one of the weaker points in my passage to the island. Because the star moves a little bit up and down over a cycle of 25,000 years. Mm -hmm. It's uh, called um, the procession, procession of, of the equinoxes. Mm -hmm. So it bobs up and down ever so slowly. But it is a coincidence that in 1790 or 91, 92, then it was exactly at the latitude of Oak Island. 
And this is the decade where the treasure hunt began. Right. So it's a trigger. <laughs> the star hits the island and then it all begins. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we see these, um, I mean, we will talk about the names here. So here we have Gloucester Island, a reference to the Duke of Gloucester. By the way, I think we ought to say a couple of more things about the Duke. Wasn't there something about uh, his barrier and the similarity to Father CRC in the Rosicrucian mythos? Indeed. They supposedly did not know where Duke Humphrey of Gloucester was buried. <laughs> Believe that, if you will. <laughs> that is very peculiar, because in St. Albans Cathedral, there used to be a sign, here lies Gloucester, and they talk about a miracle uh, that he was um, he, he was challenging a miracle, and this passage is also been uh, written into a Shakespeare play. Mm. So this was well, not a full century before they so-called by accident discovered his grave, and this was in 1703. And 17 is R, and three is C, so it's a, the R C year. Mm. Accidentally, they found a staircase, and they went down, and they found with with seven steps. Uh, <laughs> uh, Probably, <laughs> I don't. They are quite quite uh, steep, and they mm. are higher than than normal steps. It's not the standard that you'll find in in modern buildings. They are they are higher. So mm. I, I should have counted them. That was really bad. Mm. Um, but okay, they went down into this, uh, this, uh, staircase and they found a crypt and it was a coffin made of lead. <laughs> they opened it and inside was a perfectly preserved corpse and wow. it was resting in a pickle. <laughs> so wow. it's the Duke on pickle. <laughs> and would you believe that? I know the Brits are very, Weird uh, food habits, but uh, this this I think points to something yeah. else. <laughs> it's very good for your gut flora. Yeah, lots of probiotics, <laughs> and they they drank this. Oh. They took samples of it and and drank it. Okay, and they made um, tourist attraction of this poor duke that was laying in his his coffin. When approximately are you talking about now? Yeah, yes, uh, the. The decades after 1703. Wow. Okay. And if you go down to, into this this script, you'll see uh, lots of graffiti from that period. Mm. And they went down. They, they took a sip, and they also, when when the coffin was drained, because of course, if you take off the lid, then it will drain, and if you will drink the the pickle, uh, it will disappear. Okay. And this this was uh, in the end, it was uh, prohibited because. The taverns in the area, they said that people who came to Gloucester's grave and drank the pickle, they <laughs> didn't get hungry in several days, so they didn't sell any food. Jeez. So it was a protest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But of course, he, he started to uh, decompose, and in the end, it was just his skeleton, and oh. people took parts of his corpse, his, his skeleton, as, uh, as a souvenir. So these days, you only have a few pieces of uh, 
the toes and uh, also his skull. That's all that is left of for yeah. Humphrey. Yeah, they hadn't uh, wits to preserve and conserve uh, back then, so it was a free for. No, they didn't. But I would like to carbon date the, the remains because there's something fishy going on. Because on the wall, there was a mural on the wall, mm-hmm. and it had supposedly it had writing in English, and this was a tomb that was erected in 1470 something. And the language that they should have been using was Latin, of course. These were monks. Why did they use English? I suspect that it could have been a modern thing. And the corpse that was put there could have been... You mean like a hoax? I mean that the corpse was not your comfrey, but maybe someone who died in uh, 1626. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because I was getting to that. Because we have more missing bodies in this plot, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So and who else? It makes sense of uh, he who was the Viscount St. Albans to be buried in St. Albans. Yeah. yeah, which of course we're talking about bacon again. We are talking about bacon again. And this mural was on a big slab of stone. And I would also like to probe behind to, to drill a little hole and put some kind of fiber optics through that hole and look for cavities on the backside because yeah. that slab mimics the description in Fama Fraternitatis, one of the Rosicrucian manifestos, because there is a nail, this mural, or a crucifix, but one of Christ's nails have been painted exactly at the edge of that stone and you see that christ he is grabbing onto that nail it is not penetrating his hand or wrist he is holding onto it just like the tale in in pharma where they took this nail and really uh, manhandled that that uh, nail and suddenly they broke into the vault of rc Hmm. So, there are lots of possibilities here. We yeah. don't have to go to Oak Island. Maybe the, the solution to the mystery <laughs> is in St. Albans Cathedral. Who knows? Yeah. One thing is where, where is Bacon buried? Big mystery because they found his grave was empty too. And, and like you say, just to reference here, that the whole point with this missing bodies uh, is that you have the outline in the Rosicrucian manifestos. But the interesting thing about you saying the original body may have gone back to the 15th century, if it's not bacon lying there, is that it matches with the manifestos, the Rosicrucian manifestos, who say that um, this guy, Christian Rosenkreutz, he was actually operating in the 14th century, but he lived mm. a very long life. Mm. <laughs> if you have to believe those numbers literally, we don't because they cost symbols. But that would make him be buried around the Okay, I forgot the details. Uh, so he was born in 1378, and then he dies in 1484. Okay. 1368, yeah. Yes, indeed, but it's difficult. This is a royal grave, and um, I doubt that it will happen. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, but this whole mystery, we are at the core of the mystery because this is about where, uh, it's about the missing body of the father, of the founder. It is about the new temple. It is about him being placed in a new temple. And here we have physical uh, correspondences to this myth that they created, which is pretty interesting. They may have taken the facts that they know that the Duke was there, then created the myth, then imitated it with Bacon, for instance. That's one possibility. Sure. They, they certainly knew that the Duke was there. It was no secret in Bacon's days. And mm. he was uh, familiar with the area and the cathedral, so he knew. But no Quicksilver uh, Mercury concerning the Duke, right? No, no. But that is not for conservation of physical bodies. That okay. is for, for dead things like paper. And he says specifically in Silva Silvarium, which yeah, does, yeah. it's what you are referring to, that, that um, it must be thin. If it's not thin, then it will uh, decompose within. And of course, a corpse, you, could, you couldn't put a corpse into Quicksilver and hope that it would uh, stay because it would uh, rot from the inside out. Mm. Well, uh, not unless you do some uh, preservation work like the Egyptians did. Um, yeah, or, or use the pickle method uh, like you see with the Duke. Clever guys. They they yeah. knew how to overcome the limited, the low tech. <laughs> <laughs> I bought um, a book on embalming fluids, and uh-huh. the, the guy that who sold it to me, he sent me a little note. He said, "Happy embalming." <laughs> <laughs> so you <laughs> you have ambitions, huh? <laughs> it was a lot on uh, on Lenin, but not so much on the Duke. But all right, was, yeah. I tried to be. Uh, Accurate, but I, I must confess that I'm a bit rusty. I, I, I'm focusing on on other things now. It's out of my hands. People are looking for the treasure on Oak Island, and uh, it's nothing I can contribute right now. So I focus on other things. But um, talking to you really refreshes my mind. Good. We shouldn't let this story completely rest. <laughs> um, I want to say a couple of things more before we move to Oak Island uh, regarding the names. So we have Arcadia, Arcadia reference. We have Gloucester. The Duke and uh, Gloucester Island. Yeah, and then we have Nova Scotia, which I've pointed to before. It's interesting. You have the old Scotland Templars going over either the Templars did or their descendants in uh, the form of King James and Bacon and all this. Bam. So you have New Scotland, Old Scotland. Mm. But then you have Oak Island. Where did this come from? It looks like a very trivial name uh, compared to these more inventive uh, versions, but... Like I've told you before, Peter, if you look at the pictures of the original oaks that unfortunately was chopped down, where it gets its name, even here we have a fourth Masonic, call it Masonic Rosicrucian Templar link, namely that it's Arcasia, it's the African oak. They look like Acacia, yeah, they do, really, I agree. And that's so weird, Mm. because was it you, someone told me that the Masons actually revised, no, it was Timothy Hogan. Hmm. A grandmaster of our modern descendants of one of the Knights Templar lineages. He told me that, I think it was him, he told me that, I, no, it was Churton. Sorry, folks, I go back to the show and listen. Uh, I may have this wrong, but something about that the Masons revised the rituals in the, the 19th century where they put in the Solomon story. That original story wasn't about 
Solomon and Joachim and Boaz. But that, that was put in after Bacon later. And without thinking about your story here at all. So there has been revisions going on within masonry to make it, to make a genuine tradition fit something, something they're up to, some project of theirs probably. And so I see that maybe it's life imitating art, you know, but Oak Island, Acacia, masonry. Mm, it's, uh, it's extraordinary coincidence. Mm. And, and that's so special. That's what signifies this case at all. It's coincidence upon coincidence upon coincidence. And I don't use the word coincidence here as random chance. I use it as it really means. It's incidents that corresponds to each other. It's synchronicity, coincidence. Hmm. And they just seem to be, the more you dig, the more they pile up. Yeah. And you, you can begin to wonder, because... If this is not design, then still there must be some kind of design by someone <laughs> beyond somewhere that yeah. is pulling the strings without us knowing that we are just puppets. Yeah, a higher coherence. And, and you know what, Peter? That's actually a philosophical... Uh, uh, we're actually touching where two different philosophical strains that people struggle with because you have on the one hand people who uncover synchronicities become totally paranoid and think that there's a little elite of very brilliant people obviously and that doesn't fit to the rulers i see in the world <laughs> but that is a handful a cabal a handful that makes every single detail the dates the coordinates the geometry the time oh they have this occult timing that's so impeccable you would think it was like 100 pythagoras sitting doing this mm. and then you have the other extreme that thinks that no no it's all in god's hand everything is uh, the divine signature more than fallible people right mm. And maybe somewhere in between is the, is the truth, because we know that Bacon and those guys, they were religious. This was a religious project, and they had the deepest reverence to the grand architect, which is precisely what you, you could call him. And they tried to imitate the great architect. But let, let me give you an example now. Sure. In the first edition of my book with Alan Law, Organisten, uh, which now is uh, renamed into uh, The Seven Steps to Mercy. Yeah. On page 37, as word number 53, and you will recognize these numbers because they are key in the story, mm -hmm. that is the word code. Okay. And that is coincidence. So you didn't design that? No. <laughs> right. And I have another one. P. Amon. You told me about that last time. Oh, yeah, 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 and then Numa. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah your yeah, name. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but still, I, I mean, I have placed some ciphers into my books, but not that one. And that is something that I could have been designing, but I didn't. So hmm. <laughs> the reason why I think that the Shakespeare ciphers are real is that there are so many and they line up perfectly within the same pattern. So I think yeah. that's very real. And much more detailed, uh, by the way, and pointing to stuff, yeah. not just a coincidental word. But, but still, when you people knew that you had hidden homage codes, so is that how you became aware of this code, that someone found it? And no, someone contacted me. They, they, they had found it. Did you know, oh, I found a code well, that you made? 
Uh, no, I didn't make that one. <laughs> they should get be rewarded anyway. <laughs> yeah, but but at, at that point in time, I was uh, a little bit uh, uncertain, uh, mm. and I said, "Oh, uh, I wasn't happy because I was thinking, oh, then everything can be a coincidence." Huh? Yeah, right. But right, right. I. Uh, I have matured a little bit. Yeah, we discussed this point already, but but wouldn't that also depend on the format of the book, which page number it ends up in? So it wouldn't necessarily be the same in the Norwegian version? Well, this is the first edition of the Norwegian book, but it's the same. Okay. Yeah. And, and you made sure it was the same in the English edition? or No, no, no. The, the, I have done something else in the English. Okay, that's why I didn't find it when you talked about it. I was looking up the English. No, no, no. you have to have the, the Norwegian, which I have promised to get yeah, you one. I, I trust that you provide me that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's move a little on here to Oak Island now. Uh, you very early connected with uh, a guy called Fred Nolan. Connected is probably not the correct word because I tried to get in touch with him and he was extremely elusive. Hmm. So I contacted with Dan Blankenship. I called him and he picked up instantly and he told me that uh, I could just forget about getting on Joker and maybe if I kept chasing it for 20 years. Hmm. That's not very encouraging. But you managed uh, the unmanageable. I did. I was lucky. Again, coincidence, because his partner, David Tobias, he had been a coach for Norwegian pilots during the Second World War in the uh, in the so-called uh, Little Norway in Ontario. Mm. No, you at Toronto? Uh, Toronto, sorry. Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is in on Ontario, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. Mm. It's so similar. Ontario, Toronto, a very similar name. So. But uh, David Tobias, he was a pilot coach for Norwegians, and he told me that he had a soft spot for Norwegians. And since he had a soft spot for Norwegians, he uh, could make an exception. Wow. <laughs> so I just had to pay X number of thousand dollars to uh, his secretary and to uh, a certain guardsman, then uh, it could happen, hmm. which I did. And and the people who make the TV series, they attained even, I would say, maybe even more difficult thing. They managed finally to, to bury the hatches between. Because we have to say that Fred Nolan and Blankenship, Dan, Dan Blankenship, is it Dave? The original Blankenship? No, Dan. Dan. Dan so, Daniel. Daniel. So these two guys are two of the old timers that has been in a feud mm. for all these years. Very much so. But I, I could not say that the hatchet was buried because if you notice the scene where they shake hands, mm-hmm. Dan is not present. Yeah. No, it's it's strong emotion, you know. His son is Dave, yeah. David, but not Dan. And I think the son of uh, Nolan is also more open. Maybe. I, I have not, never met him. I, t- I spoke with him on the phone, but uh, we have not uh, shook hands. Yeah, Daniel, Ronsom's impression was that Fred Nolan's son was, was Tom or whatever it's called. Was, mm-hmm. Tom. Uh, because these sons, they don't, uh, they just inherit this conflict. They have no reason to be. But, but I think it was very touching and it was in the nick of time too that they got Nolan on board because now he will allow them to you know the swamp is accessible and the swamp of course is your big point that's where the mercy seat is seated yes but since uh, fred nolan passed away in june then nothing is happening in that part of the swamp so 
with seep- so you know for sure that they have still not dug the swamp after they did uh, obviously a feeble try in the original with you after that nothing has happened with the swamp you know this i only get crumbles so yeah. rumors rumors tell me that nothing has happened in that part of the swamp due to their wish to let uh, the Nolan family mourn in peace. Oh, so they good. focused on the other part of the swamp oh. because on the internet we can see pictures of them digging in the swamp and that is in the southwestern part. Yeah, because they got some other references to the swamp too. That, uh, Many. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting too that many... Again, coincidences. Uh, different incidences point to the same place. But I need to tell you something. Mm-hmm. And the sound guy who was chasing me with his boom and uh, putting microphones on me while I was uh, part of the, the TV series, mm. the, the Curse of Oak Island, not our series, but the History Channel. Yes. He has written a book and he writes in this book about something he overheard. It's almost like uh, the Trump and Billy Bush. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because the mic was live and he heard a conversation between Fred Nolan and uh, someone else. It may have been Rick, I I can't say. Okay. Where Fred Nolan talks about a wooden door that is supposed to be on the bottom of the swamp. Wow, mm. that's huge, and it's huh. supposed to be in the vicinity of the Mercy Point, right? And but I don't know how many details you got uh, from that, but uh, like a, a door just floating there, or an entrance? Typical of an entrance, uh, something on the floor. Okay, that that was uh, what he said, and uh, the book is written by a guy called Steve Uti, O U T. H-I-T. It's a French noun, name. And uh, the, the name so far is Stone Triangle. I don't know if it will be um, given a new name because uh, he had to rewrite parts of it due to uh, pressure from uh, Prometheus Entertainment. So maybe the part that I'm talking about now will be edited out. Mm. Sounds like something that they would want to do. But it's so interesting because we have, they are looking everywhere else in the island. And I think that's okay because it's, if, especially if you're a believer in the swamp, in the mercy version, because then they will kind of uh, falsify all the other possibilities or maybe even find something. But it doesn't mean the main thing, but something that will confirm that there was a project here at least. It's a big island, but it has been a huge project too, so there has to be many traces around. Mm. So I'm I'm kind of happy that they're saving the swamp for last. And we know, we know very well that Rick of the two brothers in the History Channel series, The Curse of Oak Island, we know that Rick is a fan of the swamp theory. For some reason, his brother is not probably all the pain. Marty hates the swamp. He hates the swamp. You you see that, very obvious. But Rick doesn't. So we know they get around to it. They they can't even afford not to check it out, even if they should find other stuff that will just entice them. Because now we know there's something here. You know? it, it looks as though they are focusing a lot on the money pit area this season. Totally fine with me. So if there is nothing there and if they checked out World 10X, then they are left with a swamp. And that will be season five. And I know that 
the producer in Prometheus, his ambition, mm-hmm. Kevin Burns, was to produce five seasons. So maybe the swamp will be uh, the fifth step. Or, or maybe the seventh step. <laughs> because we know yeah. we know they have many clues to investigate, not just the swamp and 10x, but that's what they've been focusing on so far. But let's hope they find enough in the fourth season to make it possible to uh, yeah. make a, a fifth yeah, I think they need to find some, but they have found uh, some here and there, but we need more now because although they are milking this with taking baby steps, yeah, it is also a huge venture and we can only see the highlights, but uh, they need also, they need people to keep following this mystery. They can't uh, squeeze it too much out and they need uh, confirmation. But this is a balancing act because we both know, Petter, that <clears throat> if they find too much of archaeological value. Mm. Maybe a problem for the treasure hunters, you know. There's always this conflict between world heritage, archaeological cares, regards, and then the personal, let's find gold and be rich, regards. Right? True. There's a balance there. So. But I, I feel confident that they will do the proper thing if they find something that really demands them reporting it i'm sure they will well i i can only guess that if i was the director and so vested in this i may have been tempted to say hey let's put a lid on this for now because they're not presenting the series chronologically they're presenting it dramaturgically as they should yep but who knows? Maybe they could sit. Uh, they found a trace. Let's not explore this yet. Yeah. So we don't know. We, we know they found Spanish coins there. They are very good at keeping secrets. So they kept a firm lid onto things. But this season, we got a spoiler by someone who brought a drone oh. and yeah, took the pictures from above. And there was big discussions on Facebook if it was something that should be published or not. We are some think that uh, we would be behave badly. It's like looking at the WikiLeaks documents. We we, we really shouldn't because we are not <laughs> privy to that information. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit, if you ask me. <laughs> we'll get to that probably. But Vinard Berken, I don't know how you pronounce that. Vi- Vinan Berken. It sounds very Welsh, very Celtic. Uh, he's, uh, he's Dutch. He's Dutch. So in, okay. in uh, Dutch, I think it is Weinand uh, Barken. Barken, yeah. He's a marine archaeologist, and he, he was very positive to the swamp, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. He likes the swamp idea. I met him and his mother recently in Norway. They were tourists. Oh, cool. so, yeah, very, very nice. Hmm. But he's, he's doing something else. He's building a fantastic uh, harbor down in, in Holland. He has moved from Canada over to oh, Holland. Oh, he has. Okay. Yeah. But he was involved for a while and, and he um, claimed that this was uh, scientifically interesting, didn't he? He seemed to really uh, ignite on all uh, the plugs regarding my theory. Mm. And, and he got the attention of a politician and we, we both know how that went. So she was inspired too and, her party launched um, a bill of law that was supposed to put the same kind of protection that the whole province has on uh, on heritage material uh, onto uh, Oak Island because Oak Island is an exception law-wise. Mm. If you got a treasure trove license, you can do pretty much what you like. Of course, you, you there are limitations, but much less than... Uh, 
the, the Heritage Act that controls the rest of the province. So she wanted to put Oak Island under the same same kind of act that would protect and would also uh, make it mandatory that you have an archaeologist on board, mm. at least as a consultant. And that um, was a threat to the treasure tr- hunters, right? Because, it's inconvenient. It's, yeah. it's more expensive, but I don't, don't really think it's expense because how expensive could it be to get an archaeologist to pop by and you yeah. talk about the strategy? But I think it's, it's a hassle. I think also that it could delay things and for the TV production, that, that would be really expensive. Yeah. So I think this is really the, the key issue here that, that it's a hassle to have mm. to deal with an archaeologist and, and have um, a difficult uh, application uh, scheme. But in my simple mind, it would be uh, an advantage to have on board scholars who could verify. Because at some point, um, you know, the, if they really believe they will find something, they understand mm. that at some point it would have to be anyway verified and yeah. lifted up to the academic standard. So, but this bill of law did not pass. Uh, no, it, so it's still the the Oak Island Act that governs. The area. I think that uh, they lobbied well and made the assurances that they would really report to the museum if something was found and uh, yeah. the politicians saw that there is this great tourism um, potential yeah. in, in the wake of, of the curse. Of course, they, they bring business to the area. So I, I think. Yeah, that- and someone needs to give you kudos for having made the locals even more aware, uh, at least aware of your. Uh, more, should I say, scholarly approach than, of course, everybody knew about is the old world oldest uh, treasure island, but now they actually know that there's something to it. Many people have a new respect for the whole phenomenon, much thanks to you. I hope so, because we had the, the world premiere for our English film in Chester Playhouse, which is a few st- stone throws from Oak Island, where we invited the local... Uh, interested uh, people and and they really uh, seem to appreciate that this island has got something for them mm. so they said that they felt that we gave the island back to the Nova Scotians which is very very nice comment yeah I agree I have two more issues, uh, two more topics uh, to touch before we, we conclude with uh, uh, informing people about your books and films going on right now. One of them is to do with the swamp. Um, there's been many anomalies, we can call it, regarding the swamp. Uh, I'm thinking about magnetism. and, and yeah, Maybe you can tell me, do you have a survey of all the weird stuff that's been happening uh, in the swamp? Not with precise spots, but there has been a lot of uh, extraordinary uh, electronic uh, yeah. equipment that has simply broken down in the vicinity of the swamp and also on the swamp. I think there is some kind of magnetism, something that, that really is a threat to electronics in the area. People say that, oh, this, this equipment, it, it never fails. So this is the first time in history it has failed. Yeah. Mm. And, and even you, when you went there with a metal detector, we can see from your own footage that it stroke, strike. And, and the timing typically also is, 
<laughs> yeah, we had, we had trouble with our equipment. The yes, first no. timing in the world, and then it rained afterwards. Mm. So it's, it's not just that science breaks down, technology breaks down, but it's even like the mm. nature forces are, are working, plotting, yeah. perspiring against <laughs> people on the island. Um, the puppeteer is... Uh, he has got strings attached to the clouds as well. Yeah. Again, it's a question. Is, is this a physical hand or is mm. it an invisible hand? But I'm getting at, with all these errors that are happening, there aren't really that many explanations. You can say that, okay, that something may have fallen down from space, you know, some exotic uh, uh, mineral with magnetic features that interferes. Uh, you have, of course, those who believe in the ancient aliens and UFOs and uh, all this stuff, and they think there's technology. Some think it's, oh, it goes back to Atlantis. But I think you you are on the track of the most likely explanation, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, people are very familiar with Graham Hancock, and we're going to interview him, and he has an excellent book on uh, the Ark. And, and I know you... The Sign and the Seal, Mm. You read it, yes, several times. Mm-hmm. I really love that book. It's it's uh, <laughs> a detective story. Yeah, so make sure it makes it into the bibliography of your book eventually. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Sorry, talking about typos <laughs> or errors. Mea culpa. Yeah, but what do you think about what do you make of the Ark as they describe it in ancient times? <laughs> <laughs> what do I make of it? Perhaps the stones inside were meteorites mm. or meteorites. You take the easy solution here. <laughs> well, because you know there is a perfectly uh, sensible hypothesis too that they were uh, an ancient form of technology. Yeah, I know, like uh, a battery or a transformer of energy. Uh, lots of theories here. But the main point is that it has been described with what we only can call um, radioactive features. Mm. And that kind of fits uh, what's going on in the swamp, I think. But you need to be powered from some source. source. Yeah. Uh, if not, it would just have been an uh, antenna. Well, well, the ever-burning lamp, you know, the, the lamp that is described in ancient law too, uh, which became the menorah uh, in the Jewish version, did not need a source to light itself. Um, I think that is uh, allegorical, because Maybe. in the Zohar, then we read about the lamp that is not the sun, but took its light, its light from the sun. Um, so. And it is allegorically in alchemy, but mm. we are not talking necessarily an either-or situation here. You yeah. know? But I, I, I hate to, to speculate on, on the nature of this. Yeah. The, the bigger question is, could it be that an arc of sorts reached Oak Island? Mm. And I think there is, is a possibility, and I found it in Hancock's book, because he describes in his book that in 1306 mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> a group of Ethiopians went to the Pope they tried to find him in Avignon but they, they found him in France somewhere mm-hmm. and had some kind of uh, errand to, to present to the Pope we do not know what and then it takes a year and then he and the French King Philip 
raids the Templars. And we also know from Hancock's book that there is reason to believe that Templars were in Ethiopia. Mm. We read about white men who carry the ark around in the street. <laughs> so maybe it was so that the Templars, encouraged by findings they did in Jerusalem, wanted more greed enters. And they hear, hear about the Ark of the Covenant in Aksum. They go to Aksum and befriends the, the king there, Lalibela, and they snatches the Ark and replaces it with something that is not the Ark and brings it to Europe. Mm. There is a German guy, uh, Tobias Wabbel, mm. who has written a few books about this, and he has taken a Geiger counter to Chartres, the cathedral in Chartres in France, and he measures signs of radioactivity mm. in that cathedral at a certain point. Mm. Yeah, let us add that uh, tradition says that at some point the Ark was buried there. That's an important thing to know here. Mm. And then, of course, it must have been brought there. So maybe Templars brought the Ark that they snatched in Aksum whether that was the original ark that uh, was in the mm. desert and in the tabernacle, that is, um, of course, another question. But I do believe that they had or have an ark. Mm. Everybody can build an ark from the description in the Bible if you have enough gold, of course. But um, Yeah, but, but then again, uh, there are ample indications that there were several arcs in original Egypt, uh, things that fits that description, and that uh, the Jews got theirs from, you know, Moses, so he was raised in Egypt, so he had to have it from somewhere, it wasn't just, uh, <laughs> he didn't just dream it up one day, and that ties back to another avenue you probably don't want to go down, but we are exploring it, and that is to do with the evidence for an antediluvian civilization which had some kind of technology and that Egypt is a remnant of that which is my favorite pet theory predating your work here your help hypothesis but that could explain that there could be several arcs although of course we know that there is this rumor that the temple snatched it because the re very reason they went down to Jerusalem was to find the ark don't you think, uh, again, speculation, of course, but what other reason do they have to do the whole Templar project, basically? I think the reason why they went to Jerusalem was to look for souvenirs or relics, a better word for it. I, I really do. Yeah. And it, it was an opening because of the crusade, then suddenly Christians could do as they please instead of just being... Uh, humble uh, visitors now they were in charge and they really uh, <laughs> seized the opportunity indeed mm. yeah because this this uh, uh, old wives tales about uh, the templars being invented to protect the pilgrims is, is uh, outrageous it's, it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> They were reprimanded for not uh, doing the job, and I mean, how much can a group of nine Templars do? Um, yeah. uh, even two guys on one horse. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no, they were archaeologists, and uh, an ark for sure. And and Chartres was one of the. They built that cathedral, and and they. Hmm. 
had it as um, one of the famous hiding places. And of course, I, I wish, do, do you know if Tobias Bubble, mm. if he also checked out Roslin Chapel, the other famous Templar hiding place? I think uh, he was there, if I'm not uh, confusing books here. Okay. Uh, I, I would like to know uh, if there's traces of um, radioactivity there and in the swamp. Mm. Nobody, to your knowledge, has checked this out yet? I sent a text message to Marty and I asked him to, to take a Geiger counter to the swamp, but I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, he will probably not report to you the results. Since you no. Will. And this was before we uh, had this clash due to the below law. Mm. I wish you sent it to Rick because we know Marty doesn't like the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he would probably, they would probably consider it nevertheless. But I tried to get on, uh, I'm in touch with uh, Trine Day, which is the English publisher of Tobias uh, Wobble. Unfortunately, his English isn't that good, so we can't interview him yet. His second book is only in German, and my German is not good, but I, I managed to, uh, with, with a dictionary, I, I <laughs> slowly. Yeah, that's how I have to read French, but let's hope that book will also be translated to English soon enough. Yeah, I think he's a brilliant guy, and uh, his first book is in English, and it's so enjoyable. Yeah. Really. Really, really. Shout out there for him. Now, finally, Peter, for today at least, would you take this challenge, although you hate speculation, if we were to paint a beautiful picture, you're the one talking about the poetry aspect, the Romans aspect. So let's do that. Let's just say here as a disclaimer, we're not claiming that what we're going to say now is exactly what has happened. But... If we are to paint a huge picture of what this story is about, from the beginning to the end, <laughs> not to the end, that's still being written, but I'm thinking about King James, the Grail, the Ark, all this. What is the optimal scenario that could be proved here? From which beginning? How far back? Yeah, how far back should we go? Well, let's say that we have, uh, let's say that King James, uh, let's start with him. Why is he significant here? How could he be tied to, to this story and the Templars and the Ark and all this? Because I think he is the middle thing here between the Templars and Oak Island, he and Bacon. Some like to call him the wisest fool in Christendom. They really like to uh, put him down. And <laughs> of course, there, there are reasons for this, but perhaps he was better than they uh, will give him credit for. Hmm. I cannot fathom how a group of noblemen could do this without the protection and the blessing of the king. Hmm. And I think that the whole thing started with King James, that they schemed already back in the 1590s that he was to take over the throne of England when Elizabeth died. And you also see that Francis Bacon, when Elizabeth dies and King James enters the throne, he starts his great project. Mm. And I think that we give Bacon all kinds of credit, but I think that uh, 
credit is due to King James as well mm. with his Bible and, and everything. So he may have had his, his challenges and he, well, uh, but I, I do think that there is um, reason to to put him in a better light if this thing that I pretend proves to to have some kind of merit. And I think that maybe we should look into King James and mm-hmm. check if if maybe his role uh, merits uh, some lifting up. Yeah. Churton said that uh, he had a hermetic uh, education and that uh, we know already that, uh, you know, he was, I guess he was a nephew of of, um, uh, Elizabeth because it was her sister, Mary, was not the sister of Elizabeth. Yeah, Mary Stuart. Yeah, there there is some connection there. Yeah, and and he was Mary Stuart's son and he was, uh, Mary was Catholic, Elizabeth was uh, Protestant mm. and so he was like a middle he was a, a deal uh, they made because he was raised Protestant but he was born uh, of a Catholic uh, mm. mother and if he is the son of well he is the son of Mary but that would make him the cousin of Bacon if Bacon you know the conspiracy theory that Bacon is the illegitimate son of Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. That may, would make them cousins, which may, would give them a huge reason to put their hand, heads together. And he's raised in Scotland, and at precise point where we have to find a binding element between Templars, who we know had a refuge in Scotland. And at least there is great reason to believe that they did. I, I hate to say that we know that they went, but I think it's... Well, other researchers do. It's a consensus that it's very likely that they did. And it's quite natural, because where did the English Templars go? There would only be one place to go, and that would be up north. Yeah, but we do know that individuals had refuge there. And I sent you, I wish I had it open, or I also sent you some references to... King James once, but but the point is, um, we don't, of course, know if the organization per se survived. No, that, that is that is what I'm talking about because there were, of course, a few Scottish Templars. That is no doubt. But yeah. um, if if the whole bunch went to Scotland, uh, we, if you put on a, an arrow on a map and you say here is where <laughs> they went, and uh, yeah. yeah. At that point. But it could also have been a natural station on the way to something further away, further occidental. It could. It could certainly, yeah. yeah. So so we have that scenario then, don't we? That King James may have inherited something that he was told, this you have to keep under wraps. He was, after all, an honorary Mason among the Proto-Masons. Yes. This isn't even the Freemasons, isn't the Proto-Masons. If you ask... Tobias Churton about this, he will talk about uh, Ramsey and will say that the Templar Freemasonic link is just a myth, Chevalier Ramsey. Yeah. It is a modern modern invention. But I think that uh, I, I actually, <laughs> with all respect for, for the excellent work of Tobias Churton, I believe that Masonry stems from, uh, from Templarism. Hmm. And that Scotland is the the point to look for them. And as you say, King James, Scottish king. 
Mm. And the king is the man on top, and he should know. Mm. So I think he brought masonry with him to England in some form. So, so yeah, some survival form. And uh, this must have been so important. And you should see the unstable times. And King James couldn't know that he would, how his reign would end. He knew it was heavy times. So he'd probably discuss with Bacon, what can we do here? Bacon was private. Bacon was a part of the inner circle, the spice and all that. So what can we do here? Hmm. What project can we make here? But there is a logic here because you, you, the, the New Scotland, the, the name was coined later. It was in 1625 by William Alexander, but earlier. Interesting. Day. They were in the process of getting the Nova Scotia from the French. So it didn't happen until around 1610 plus minus. Hmm. But when they did, that would be a perfect spot for disposing of certain artifacts that were in kept by by the masons of Scotland, perhaps. Hmm. Yeah. So the time and as a fun, foundation stone for the the new continent that they were building over there, I think it's beautiful. To bring it over there in the new coveted land of milk and honey and new temple. And of course, the temple needs, uh, the relics or even it is God. God is resting on, <laughs> on the mercy seat. That is the, the seat of God. Yeah. And if it has some paranormal to them, at least technological to us, but paranormal functions, that's a proof that it's divine. That's the, the sacred relics needs to be in a new temple mm-hmm. since the old is gone. So, okay. So let's say they put their heads together. King James Bacon, who knows who else was involved already at this point. So why would they, they must have designed, they must have started uh, maybe with the Rosicrucian project um, or they may have hijacked Andreas already circulating if uh, you know to what extent we accept andrea's involvement but they may have taken that and used it and hijacked it so that they weren't the first rosicrucian but this is more in line with churton's take on this whole thing he thinks it's genuine but that <clears throat> oh it's so convenient we have now this rosicrucian story let's use it mm-hmm. that's kind of his approach as i read it <clears throat> and but then you have the other way that no let's create the which is Daniel Ronstam's take, let's make Rosicrucianism a project, basically. So I think these are details. It's not that important, really, what came first here. The fact is, the important stuff is that they did. Right? Well, I believe that the Palma Fraternitatis was originally English. Mm. And then it was translated into German. Right. And I say this because of um, one of the abbreviations that we find there. But this can be the topic for our next uh, discussion because uh, it is uh, we, it takes time to go into that. But there is uh, an extremely interesting detail that points, I believe, to that Fama was originally English. As some people say that uh, Don Quixote and... Um, and the Shelton translation was before the Spanish. <laughs> so this is something of the same thing. Mm. Yeah, so that may be tied in. So we have the uh, Rosicrucian project 
You you said earlier that in your view we have the Mason project, and and for all intents and purposes, we can just say that the Rosicrucians, the Templars, and the Mason is the same thing in this story. It's just different words for different faces of it. I think it's it's fair to say that Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism at Shakespeare's time was one and the same. And I say mm. this as I always do, based on ciphers that uh, unite they are put on the same page and it's the same thing yeah so the ciphers just confirm what is already the law the tradition because this wasn't a new thought with your ciphers but they they did confirm this uh, connection so you've said that you think they preserved the practical stuff in bacon i mean the shakespeare project that would preserve clues to the treasure and and, um, Oak Island. Mm. And they preserved the method to reach uh, those insights in masonry then. And the Rosicrucian project, which became Freemasonry in this hypothesis. So that would explain why they would need two projects, right? I usually say it this way when I give talks on the subject, that you have the treasure map that is Shakespeare. But you need need a toolbox to open it up. And the toolbox is Freemasonry. Right. And Freemasonry is also something that would build you ethically and morally Mm. with the ambition that the person with the toolbox to open the treasure map would ideally also be well-trained in ethics and moral so that he will dispose of it in a responsible way. In a responsible way. Yes. And uh, and both the Rosicrucian project and the Shakespeare project had other common denominators. For instance, they wanted, like you tied it to the play arts, they wanted a reformation, they wanted a change of society. Mm. A restoration. Yeah. That's true. Knowledge to the people. Mm. And knowledge is power, as as Bacon said. So it's power to the people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And to all conspiracy theory lovers out there, remember we're talking proto, we're talking before, you know, the contemporary may, oh, the Masons are involved in everything, right? Uh, controlling everything. No, that's today, <laughs> if ever. Back then, it was uh, a revolutionary movement, basically, um, against the uh, powers that be back then, which were um, king and pope, basically. Yeah. And regarding the modern Freemasons, you'll find certain cells within Freemasonry who does this. This is not the normal Masonry. This is like uh, the Propaganda Due in in Italy. It was a Masonry within Masonry. So it's not something that all Masons are privy to. This is something for a select few who uh, who, uh, are qualified for some reason to, to enter into this. Yeah, basically you have to be CIA or a fascist or otherwise a bastard. So, but <laughs> there's many. So it's an excellent platform to build a super secret cell within Freemasonry. But yeah. you, it's wrong to say that Freemasonry is at fault here. But mm. they use this as um, some platform to construct a dangerous cell within within the system. It's a perfect uh, way to organize too. I think that's one of the reasons uh, these people decide 
explain it like that because, uh, like we said many times, uh, Bacon at uh, all was involved in spyworks, and now if you need, so they knew how to organize in a way that you would survive the powers that be. That's how they had to organize in the beginning, so they wouldn't be smacked down. And and this is vulnerable to be hijacked. And today there's a million organizations identifying as Masons. And so, like you said, it's just a few of them who have been proven to be involved in shady politicking and and, and plotting. Mm. Yeah. So, and uh, as for propaganda, do I don't even think they were calling themselves Masons. I think they were uh, Johannites or or something like that. But it's kind of a Masonic structure anyway. Yeah, they're giving uh, Masonry a bad name. Yeah, yeah, they and some others. But let's go to something more positive now, just for the English audience, uh, because they never, when we talked the last time, they had access to very little, actually. Uh, We hadn't put up the links yet, and there wasn't that much to link. Uh, Let's start with your books. Uh, you had the first book about this, which was in Norwegian called The Organist, which is actually a title referring to you and your work. Well, um, people think that. Oh, but I, I thought that. Yes, you are, you, you are one of the people. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not done reading it, by the way, so I'm excused. <laughs> um, I think I explain it in one of the versions of the Norwegian book. It's not in the English book, I think. I'm not certain. But okay. Bacon. His most famous work was Novum Organum, the new organ. From uh, he he revised science. So to me, Bacon was the organist. Yeah, that's that's a very nice, uh, beautiful poem right there. (laughs) It's a double meaning, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. excellent. But anyway, so that book, you wrote that, like we said uh, last time, you wrote it with a very famous, uh, I think that was a chess move on your part to involve Mr. Alan Lowe. Yeah. So he kind of transcribed your meetings. And I have to say this, people, that when you get the book now, it's available in English. Uh, when you get the book, you will see that you don't have to understand very much at all in the beginning. He explains this book you basically will be seeing the book through his eyes hmm. in the meeting with Petter, and you will gradually get to understand what it is all about. And I say this about the book, Petter. I think that explosion of amateur codebreakers, which is around now, probably both to your annoyance and pleasure, is has actually, I think there, there's many of them have started with your book, and then they oh, is this how it works? Wow, I want to do the same. And you encourage people to do that. So you're kind of partly to blame. Me. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so this is a good starting point. I do encourage people to look for things because there is so much left to be found. Yeah. I see this all the time. But what I'm saying is that you do not need my blessing. If it, this is something that seems to work, that is fantastic. But... It will not be even more fantastic if I say fantastic. Please <laughs> no. trust your instinct and publish it somewhere, but uh, do not try to go through me because I... Um, kind of fed up, aren't I, you? Uh, <laughs> Many people do. <laughs> uh, I, think it's, I think I have enough because yeah. I cannot take it further. So why should I amass lots of codes that really does not move this forward it's like a pressure cooker yeah 
Yeah, and, 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 and you've been kind enough and given many people your time and you pointed people, helped people, criticized. All has been helpful. But I think that they could not foresee computers back then. So obviously this must have been, it, it wasn't just a group project. Both the Shakespeare Rosicrucian projects were group projects. And also the entire arc thing here, Oak Island Templar thing, is, is a group project. But they must have thought also to decode this must be a group project. And that's another reason to get people involved, right? Mm. We have computers now, but we also have many bright heads. Yes, and yet it, this is embedded into the drama and the poetry. Uh, so how much of a group effort that would be needed to do this, I I cannot really say. But I, I bought this uh, as the notion that it was just Francis Bacon, but mm. but I think maybe if Sir Francis Bacon could be the master code uh, constructor here, and and uh, perhaps Stanley and Neville were more of uh, the normal poets, the artists in the project, yeah, um, yeah. maybe, um, and James uh, with the responsibility for the artifacts themselves. Yeah. It must have been a really big group and I think many noblemen were participating and of course William Shakespeare was part of this somehow but I doubt that his role was with a quill in his hand yeah yeah no he certainly didn't compose much but no but he may have even be he was involved in theater so he may have been involved in the play practically uh, not just as a frontman but also as someone who uh, performed yes it's supposed to be an actor so that, that helps if you are pretend you are the author <laughs> yeah. uh, well, let's hope he got some groupies and uh, a good life out of this i think of course he did <laughs> he had an excellent life <laughs> yeah compared to his uh, to where he started off something happened that's for sure uh, oh yeah you know who he, who he reminds me of he reminds me of uh, this priest in southern france Sonier. Ah, Beranger, oui. Sonier. Oui, oui. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So there are similarities here between those two. Um, okay, uh, so the organist has become the seven steps to mercy. Yes, we changed the title to match the film. Mm. Our film is now out on Vimeo, but you can watch it in England. You cannot watch it in Canada or the United States and not in Germany because of the DVD rights and not in Norway. So Norway, Germany, in, uh, USA and Canada are exempt, but the rest of the world can go to Vimeo, the video on demand and look for the seven steps to mercy. And that is a three. Yeah. Sorry, no, continue. It's a three-part series. Mm -hmm. Three times, uh, I believe it's 53 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So, so first of all, that's a weird discrimination. Uh, but uh, I, I guess that's... Uh, I, I guess the rest of us will will get our version available eventually. Um, but to get a taste for this, you can go to Vimeo, the free uh, Sweet Swan of Avon. Yeah. The basics, uh, where it started. We have linked that up. Yeah. But will you not publish the Seven Steps to Mercy movie to Germany, Norway, Canada, America, eventually? Oh, yes, but uh, I think they are negotiating. So, right, so not yet, but they will come. 
yeah, but at the moment. But if you know how to uh, go around the VPN on your computer, then it's no problem. I use um, you encourage people. Media Hint uh, is what I use on Firefox. Right. That makes it possible for me to watch the curse uh, local. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy if people watch this. So I, huh. oh, you got uh, ten thousand potential listeners. Then is they, more to come. That won't uh, be any problem if they use uh, a VPN uh, on meter. Yeah, and the tech savvy knows a way around. The rest will just have to wait. But uh, you say it's in in three parts. Now I saw the original movie you made after the series, which was called. Um, uh, the hidden codes in Shakespeare. Now that the Shakespeare the hidden truth. Yeah, Shakespeare the hidden truth. Mm. That's been transformed to the first part of Seven Steps, right? Yes. So we we shot some new scenes and we uh, revamped it a little bit, and I think it's the best effort so far. Okay. I really think it deserves to get an audience, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult because. We need to get through the committees and there mm. will always be someone in the committee who has studied Shakespeare and knows very well that if someone comes with an accusation that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare, then it is a rubbish. <laughs> and of course, our TV channel cannot affiliate itself with such rubbish. It's extremely difficult to sell this. So I think this is why it has wound up on video on demand and uh, demand uh, right now. Mm, mm. Well, you know, uh, sometimes trends, people's demands can battle what the suits design from above. And we saw that in popular stuff like the Da Vinci Code, yep. which of course has been uh, often compared here. But that went viral just by, not by marketing, but by people. And the same was true earlier about the alchemist of Polo Coelho. So we can see sometimes that mm. stuff, if it becomes popular and known, then you don't need these big marketing uh, projects. So let's hope that as many people as possible get a tester for this. But I'm, I'm going to ask you about the movie. I, I saw something called Seven Steps. Was that part one and part two? Like the old movie plus the new stuff, part two? There was a version that was screened on the NRK, Norwegian Broadcasting. Yeah. And that was uh, a feature version of those three episodes. So the three episodes are more in-depth. There is 10 more minutes of material, I think. Right. Yeah, because I think the ending was a little off. It was a very abrupt. Yeah. Of but this it... is this is not a story that has found its ending. It, it, it is open. Touche. We, we are looking to Oak Island <laughs> yeah. to see if something turns up. Yeah. That's how it is. Yeah, you would have to make yeah, you will have to make the ending in the future. History is still in, in the, the making here. This is a process. Yes, and you people can be a part now. You can you can follow this as it unfolds. So so yeah. go to the free TV series. You will find it at this presentation page at our website, forumborealis.net. Uh, go to guests and click on Petter, and now you'll see everything. And you see the bibliography. And uh, we deserve to mention the other book too, Petter. You have the book called Oak Island and the Treasure Map in Shakespeare. Is it fair to say that that's a condensed version? It has other aspects. It was something that I wrote alone. It is made in between Organisten and the Seven Steps, which is uh, the upgraded version of uh, Organisten. Right. 
So it has some material that is not in the upgraded organist, but the book that I would uh, go for would be the the Seven Steps. It has more material and it has the voice of Alan Lou, who is a celebrated author. It adds a certain quality to the material. It's more user friendly in many ways. It is an excellent uh, dramaturgy he's he's using here. Um, I have to say, yes, I agree. But uh, I would say that, uh, in a way, maybe it's even an easier read, The Seven Steps, even though it has lots more material codes, pictures and stuff than the Oak Island book. Mm. But in a way, I'd say the Oak Island book is straight to the point. It's very, maybe less poetic, but it's more fact-based. You just start immediately addressing the core points, throw it right in your face. I hope it is. And I see on Amazon where it is uh, for sale that both books have a four and a half star rating. And mm. uh, that's not too bad. The, the blue book that was in between uh, the Oak Island and the Treasure Map in Shakespeare has 30 some reviews. So four and a half star there means more than I think it, uh, 10 reviews of, of the other book. Uh, but still, people seem to be happy. Right. No, uh, you should probably deduct half a star for the skeptics who deliberately go in and give it lower. So it should probably be higher, actually. Yeah, but if you read the comments, then you'll get uh, a sense of what they really think. Right. No, because uh, when I read these two books, and I'm reading them parallel, I get the sense that uh, the one you wrote alone, Oak Island, it's really a, you give a lot of information there in very condensed presentation, whereas the other book, Seven Steps, formerly Organist, is much more considerate of, okay, let's bring the reader into the story. Let's take mm. this in measured steps and make him digest it as he... It, it takes much more consideration to someone being totally blank. Mm. So I would say that if you start with Seven Steps, it's probably easier to start with that and then go over to A Treasure Map, Oak Island and A Treasure Map in Shakespeare... The other book. I, I think so. That That is uh, an excellent strategy. Yeah. But if you do the other way around, if you just are uncertain, if you're really interested enough to, to delve into this and you start with fact-based, comprised book, Oak Island and Treasure Map and Shakespeare, then I can at least console you with, you're not going backwards if you go to the other one, because the other one has just as many updates as uh, the first one. But uh, you will get much more details so in a way, you could also start with Oak Island and then, oh, wow, this is this is my taste. Mm. Well, then go further to seven steps and get all the details yeah. beautifully woven. So I think it works both ways, Peter. And they are not that expensive as ebooks either. So it's um, it's not forbidding to, to get both of them and see for yourself what... Excellent. Mm. Uh, final question here. Do you think The Seven Steps will be aired as a cinema, cinematic movie? Um, just special screenings for festivals, if at all. Too bad. I think we are, yeah, but we have had several of those with the, the old version, the, the Hidden Truth. Mm. And it's always interesting, and we have a Q&A session in the end, and people are really... Uh, awestruck by uh, the material that they, they see here and uh, it's, it's hard to, to really believe that it could be so but mm. it 
still it's some of it is inescapable uh, it's really provoking material yeah, it is and i say that many of those who have their own research going and are marketing that most of them actually lean on you your discoveries and material is the core it's so indisputable and in your face that it opens up all these other avenues if those people didn't have your stuff in the bottom they would have a so much weaker case but because of that they can afford to indulge into other avenues if you see what well, i mean thank you that's very kind of you to um, to say so yeah well it's an, just an absurd fact yeah it's very kind of you to come on today, Peter, and thanks a lot for coming on and giving us these updates. Very interesting. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me, Al. It's always a pleasure, and I'm impressed with the effort you make to really uh, delve into this. Sure. You're always welcome here. here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And this concludes tonight's program. We hope you enjoyed a big thanks to those of you who support us and keeps us going. Remember that if you sign up at our website, you will get access to more shows, bonus clips, forum talks with questions and comments from listeners that you also can pose to our guests. If you want a quick admission, send us a notification that you donated and registered pending approval. Otherwise, it may take some time to get access since we're going on zero resources but our spare time and voluntary efforts. Finally, we naturally have to check in with Sir Francis before parting. He says, Imagination was given to man to compensate him for what he is not, a sense of humour to console him for what he is. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts, but if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Read not to contradict and confute, nor to believe and take for granted, nor to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider. Reading maketh a full man, conference a ready man, and writing an exact man. And therefore, if a man write little, he need have a present wit. And if he read little, he need have much cunning to seem to know which he doth not. Some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested thoroughly. That is, some books are to be read only in parts, others to be read but not curiously, and some few to be read wholly and with diligence and attention. Hope is a good breakfast, but it is a bad supper. A wise man will make more opportunities than he finds. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Your host has been Al, and until next time, 
I remain yours sincerely. Be seen. Number one.